The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We've been discussing recently the rapid changes, some may call it decline and chaos, surrounding rhino, rhino poaching, anti-poaching, and the selling of rhino horn. Barely six months on from CITES, COP17, which convened in South Africa, which definitively stated no trade in horn, in a country known as the last stronghold for rhino, a good percentage of which are privately owned and bred, and the front line of ground zero in the rhino wars. As of now, South Africa's Minister of Environment, Edwa Edna Molewa has petitioned to delist the eastern black rhino from its protected status and as further insult practically referring to it as an invasive species and even further requesting to open the domestic trade in rhino horn and proposed two cases to expect, uh, export rhino horn for personal use. To remind my listeners, it is still legal to hunt and kill rhino in South Africa due to the ban on trade in rhino horn. And in South Africa, where many rhino are bred in large numbers by private individuals, a few who have extremely large herds, for which they state are for conservation reasons, but whom also are wealthy investors backing the trade in rhino horn with huge stockpiles from dehorning programs. Let's be clear, as well, that not all private rhino breeders in South Africa are pro-trade, but those that are seem to be pressing their advantage. Today, my guest is Ashwell Glasson, a conservationist with a background in wildlife policy and risk management, and a solid understanding of the various political situations, not only in South Africa, but around the rhino horn trade. Today, Ashwell and I are going to dig into this morass of confusion to better understand both the history and recent trends, not only in anti-poaching efforts, but in the economics and market forces at play here in a very rapidly changing world. Welcome, Ashwell. Hi, thanks, Ellie. Great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. We have quite an episode ahead and a lot to dis- uh, to discuss. So why don't we start by you giving us just a little bit of information about you. Okay, yeah. My background has been primarily in conservation and capacity building. So I started um, just after 
my national service, uh, doing what the Americans would probably call the draft um, way back when, I'm not going to actually say, uh, and then from there moving into the conservation field. So where lots of people who did uh, their military service didn't enjoy spending hours and days and weeks and months uh, in the bush. I loved it and sort of thrived on it, really. And out of that, uh, plus a, a childhood spent bird watching and that kind of thing, uh, conservation just was a natural interest. And then eventually, uh, I'm really pleased to say, turned into a career as well as, in my case, a life. You know, and it, I treat it as my life. And I've worked in and out of the public and private sector uh, in South Africa, so in what we would call government here, as well as uh, in NGOs and community-based organizations. And right now, I run my own small um, NGO called Dark Tide, um, doing lots of work in and around conservation policy, as well as uh, looking at very practical things on the ground like training and development uh, and much-needed capacity building. Uh, around what is one of the most contested issues in Africa, if not in the world. So, just one little second. Dark Tide sounds like a very dark name for an NGO. I think you told me at once that you're also very involved in youth, you know, youth conservation uh, capacity building, and that Dark Tide is actually a, a marine term. Yes, um, it refers to deoxygenization of water and obviously um, an area, a dead zone. And I, instead of t choosing the traditional name of uh, many NGOs, which normally have something like biodiversity in them or conservation this or um, perhaps a, a species-oriented thing uh, like um, the Royal Society Protection of Birds, I went with the worst case scenario, uh, which is no talent, passion or interest in conservation and ultimately with youth, particularly our youth, the future rests with them, the old adage, and working with them to be able to become stewards and champions um, of conservation and our biodiversity um, is at the core of what I do. Well, this is very much at the core of our, our conversation today, um, which we have titled, you know, World Order Conservation 2.0, and never more important in our recent history, I'm not going to say in an entire history, but our recent history is the millennial, the younger generations mm. that are coming up to engage and um, empower help them find empowerment. I don't know that we can empower somebody. That has to come with from within. But so many youth today are looking for something to do and they want to have an impact and they want to invest in something that is passionate for them. But they've also been raised in this new world with everything at their fingertips, instant gratification. And um, it takes time, literally time, walking the earth to gain experience of what there is and where your place is. And it's also interesting that in many countries in Africa, um, most of my colleagues have done military service, and that military service takes place in the bush rather than, let's say, our U.S. guys going over to Iraq or 
Syria or Afghanistan and being dumped into the middle of a conflict, um, learning militarization in the bush and spending a lot of time out there has given a lot of African conservationists, black or white, this isn't a race issue, that connection to the world. So a lot of my colleagues have spent time in the military, and we're going to talk about that too, the militarization of anti-poaching. And it come, it, that background that you mentioned earlier is a big part of why conservation is very different and the movement is very different in Africa than, let's say, what it is here, animal rights, animal welfare, and a lot of I love animals, emotional knee-jerk reaction. That's not what we're talking mm. about here. We're talking about real issues, real-world changes that are being seen, felt, and dealt with, and finding positive solutions that we here, my listeners, can find a way to become involved in. So let's get into militarization of anti-poaching. Um, your background and uh, what we've been talking about and part of the goal of this episode today is to discuss what's happening in Rhino Horn and in South Africa and how that's going to affect other places in the world, um, the supply, where rhinos live, the demand, where they're being traded, why, what drives the demand, and anti-poaching. This w- tendency that we're seeing now of warring up, gearing up, militarized anti-poaching. Training certainly is important because the landscape, as we said, has changed. It's not the ranger out there just driving along through landscape. There are real threats out there to wildlife. It is a war on wildlife. But what has this gearing up of militarization in anti-poaching, what do you what do you see this trend is? Your experience from history to going forward. Um, Ellie, I think it's 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 been a, a interesting journey. Initially, uh, if we look back into the days of Teddy Roosevelt and establishing uh, parks in America and the the growth of federal. Um, uh, preserves and all of that right through to Africa we've seen (laughs) interestingly the beginning of many national parks were actually run by military men by ex-law enforcement officials uh, that kind of thing and we've now probably in the last 60 or 70 years have returned to a military model as a, a short-term response to the impact of poaching and the impact of things aligned to poaching, which is um, increased criminality in bordering communities, um, corruption in customs officials, that kind of thing. And our default position, I think, for many of us um, and I can't say sadly, but in a way it is sad, is that we default to a military response. And so we militarize roles that actually have been about land management, have been about stewardship of parks, um, and even to a a greater or less extent engagement with communities, if not on the basis of being partners with communities, at least uh, drawing on communities for um, the labor market of national parks, which has been the common um, theme in South Africa, 
very much the common theme in South Africa. Since the late 90s, that has started to change. It's kind of now gone back to the military or law enforcement hybrid model. Um, so when we talk about community-based conservation, that was a real bandied about phrase um, some time back. But um, in a lot of the reading, and I do hope my listeners read various books on conservation, highlights exactly what you were just talking about, Ashwell, the um, colonial militarization model that came from a Western mindset of removing people from the landscape and setting it aside for perpetuity for the enjoyment of people in a pristine, untouched landscape. What we forget in that model is the indigenous people kept that landscape in the shape it was to the point that we kicked them out. So this whole idea of community-based conservation, bringing back and working with the local people, did get lost in conservation. We kind of hid them and, as you said, put them into the labor market. Why are we not taking advantage of that lifeway? mindset, conservation ethic of living within that landscape that they did for hundreds of years before we came along with our colonial military model and shut it out and fenced it off. Mm. It's a very, very interesting question. And often um, many responses to it are based on the public sector or state perspective. in South Africa, we've obviously have the torrid and awful history of apartheid, which was further, which further compounded the initial colonial period, an awful period in terms of forced removals, um, and yeah, the complete forced disconnection of people with ancestral rights uh, to burial grounds, uh, holy places, sacred places. Um, so, it. It wasn't just a stewardship of the land, if one really has to say it, it was a complete assault on the cultural integrity of many, many indigenous groups in South Africa. And something that is not necessarily spoken about, but as in the States, the concept of first peoples um, and Canada and other parts of the world is obviously a resurgence in it. The other side of the conversation is private ownership of um, land and that's always a a tricky one because of the immediate financial benefit of having private game reserves and those kind of things with a a massive amount of private lodges etc etc that do try and engage in good stewardship um, as well Uh, many of them do or uh, maybe not. Some of them are just there to convert what was once a pristine area into a cattle farm or a pineapple farm or something like that. Or a game so, ranch hunting farm or a rhino farm. Yes, exactly. And we're up against a balance of both. So the the discussion and view, the trend is not just that it's about national parks that um, expropriated and kicked people out. That's definitely part of it. The other element is also private land ownership and land use since that private land ownership uh, took place. And that's obviously also a very difficult one. There and it's are, also very um, particular 
or specific to South Africa, where most of the land is privately owned and fenced, um, either for game reserves, ranches, or wildlife farming and hunting, um, and, and a sustainable utilization model where wildlife must pay to stay. So this brings us back to two points um, where we got started, making enemies of conservation by displacing and the assault on the local communities and kicking them out of the picture for our model, and then the militarization that we're seeing scaling up in anti-poaching and training up the local communities to be soldiers to protect their landscapes. It does bring in the implications that conservation has changed. Uh, we have huge criminal cartels, you know, this illegal trade in wildlife. So we're going to step to a break and then we'll bring this back up. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with Ashwell Glasson, and you're listening to Our Wild World. At the end of the last section, we had brought up several concepts of not only 
the history of the indigenous people, first peoples, the removal of these people from their landscape and a disconnect in stewardship, and now the upping and the change in the world order as we see it today to Conservation 2.0, which needs to shift. And part of that shift is the militarization, which Ashwell had said is actually an original model of sort of a colonial holdover to what we're doing now, but in a changed landscape where we have huge international criminal cartels. So let's kind of bring this together, Ashwell, in terms of let's focus on rhino trend trade and what's happening in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. The 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 reality is is as you've pointed out, the the historical difference versus the contemporary reality is that there's more people, there are more cartels, uh, the trade has become more opaque in a way, and what's happened is many uh, of the uh, transnational elements of the trade are likely tied to uh, national security issues. So if we make the long-distance connection between South Africa and um, as far as Somalia, you might find that some of the dollars that are reaching Al-Shabaab, and there's no um, anti-Muslim uh, perspective in what I'm saying either, uh, could be derived from uh, the illegal trade in many wildlife parts, rhino included. Um, there was a time when uh, Yemen, uh, for example, was a very large importer of rhino horn for traditional Yemenese uh, daggers, dagger handles. Um, there's likely... Uh, a whole range of connections. What it does do um, in the short term is that militarization as a response is very easy to budget. It's easy to get short-term results. Um, it's easy to uh, convey those results uh, into a broader media-driven world, particularly to very, very strong activist movements that are demanding immediate results. But systemic change, what we're really talking about in Conservation 2.0, is generational. Um, uh, and I like to draw the, the analogy or difference between training is great for skills and great for employment and great for building competence. But we need to look at education as a contribution to people and their development in community areas and development overall, uh, a more holistic form of development. Um, otherwise, what we'll do is end up uh, in a long war, in uh, a war without end over wildlife. Okay, hang on a second. You know. The big buzzword today is educating the locals. So let's step back a second and parse that out. What are we educating them in? Are we educating them to reconnect to their lifestyles, their cultural history, their cultural integrity, and the, the stewardship they once had with the land that colonialism disconnected and in, input the Western model on? Or are we educating reading, writing, arithmetic? Let's let's focus on this for a second. So the perspective I have is we've got to be careful of a patronizing 
almost condescending uh, post-colonial view, which is unfortunately perpetuated as we speak. We're not, we have no right to tell somebody how to reconnect with a deep historical culture. What we can do is recognize opportunities for partnerships to help those communities function in touch with their heritage with a broader um, society. So many of these communities do have literacy and numeracy issues, um, basic education and access to, uh, let's call them more first world resources are hard to come by. So their opportunity to be equal partners in developments around conservation, to have more meaningful um, contributions and um, to extract the kind of value that they could, and I'm not saying just financial value, to, to be able to sit at the table as equals um, is still something that is very difficult. Um, there is one counterexample I have to that is the, the community-based natural resource management projects uh, in northern Namibia have seen great success in this regard uh, where they are taking more and more control over what's historically theirs, but in partnership with other organizations who would like to benefit from the resources that they are um, sitting on. And when I say resources, their, their diversity and their regions that um, are historically theirs in terms of the land. And I'm not saying um, palming it off for oil, gas or other forms of extraction, I'm really talking about ecotourism um, and related kind of uh, services and things like that. This is a perfect example right here. Um, the conservancy model in Namibia dates back many, many years. And um, so this is a perfect example to once again come back to where we started or one of the things that we're trying to talk about, the militarization and training of what used to be rather simple in conserving and you know providing stewardship to the communities now we have these outside westernized whether it's um westernized models even if it were speaking of um asia or vietnam and uh, cartels and criminal cartels mm. so here's the reason where these this training up in militarization is necessary because even in Namibia now it's being hit the rhino are being hit there up in the northern areas mm. so now let's bring it back to South Africa which is very different we're talking a lot of private herds in mm. almost industrialized farming of rhino which requires a lot mm. of wealth um, to begin mm. with and a lot of mm. financial resources to sustain that and then the mm. dehorning projects and the caches of rhino horn that are very highly valued. So in terms of South Africa, what is driving the value of rhino horn? What's driving this? Is it the banking on extinction? Is it banking on trade? And then, of course, the arguments that supply demand. At, at its simplest the, the drive around the demand and the trade issues comes from several things. Uh, policy incoherence. So the South African government uh, has taken a, a specific stance 
but is now shifting that stance and more and more it seems like we will break ranks with um, uh, let's call it not necessarily a global view but the dominant view regarding uh, rhino horn and um, even other related things as far as even elephant ivory goes. So that's definitely the one thing. Most investors will take their cues from legislative and policy um, imperatives that the state sets. Um, so that's, from our perspective, is definitely a major factor. Uh, the other factor is the historical caching of rhino horn means there's a massive, massive amount of rhino horn sitting in safes spread around South Africa. And what we are seeing, um, and I, I know I'm speaking very strongly in political terms, but what we're seeing is that our conservation agencies, um, state agencies, um, are having real budget cuts in real terms, in material terms. Um, and that's definitely um, a big issue. So Isambelo KZN Wildlife, which looks after uh, the KwaZulu province, KwaZulu-Natal province, is um, in financial trouble. And they've been one of the first agencies to try and take the lead on looking at rhino horn trade proposals. So what we're seeing, and a lot of the assumptions and uh, we are making, is that government wants to legalize the trade on rhino horn, uh, whether it's domestically or internationally, to clear its cash and make cash, the two Cs. That's my my view, and I, I tend to tell people that all the time. So clearing the cash and making cash, and certainly... I hope, um, if they're going to go through the decision, and I don't agree with it, that money will return to conservation. Um, now, will see, return there's, it. there's the argument. Will hmm. people who have huge caches of rhino horn that have invested so much money, finances and resources in protecting their stock of rhino, protecting their stockpile of rhino horn, and the dehorning projects, will they put this money into the larger circle of conservation or will it just stay inside the bubble? Well, I think we have to draw the distinction of something very important. And you mentioned it just now. The industrial scale farmers of rhino um, will certainly reap massive uh, immediate benefits and they will probably refine the industrial scale techniques of rhino farming. The other grouping which are not interested in rhino farming but are interested in maintaining big five and maintaining reserves that uh, are generally used for photographic safaris would like to recoup some of their costs of rhino um, security measures due to the rhino crisis. And many of them are not pro-trade, but they're caught in this vicious cycle where they're hemorrhaging cash. Their, their businesses, their lodges and operations are not making enough to cover 
um, uh, many of the rhino security operation costs. Um, and that's a massive issue. Uh, more than anything, it's that grouping that will probably have the final um, say even over the industrial scale farmers who tend to crowd out the airtime, as I like to say. It's, there are far more private game reserves um, with uh, both white and black rhino that are desperately in trouble um, because they just, they've gone from maybe 20 staff, 30 staff doing anti-poaching to 100 staff and with everything that goes with that. So in other words, you're saying they have smaller herds, they're not interested in trade, but they have to compete on the same scale of anti-poaching as those who do have the resources and are banking on trade. So it's mm. it's an unlevel playing field for the smaller reserve who just wants to maintain biodiversity, stewardship, and ecotourism with uh, wildlife and do not offer hunting. So yes. it, it, it's a very sticky wicket here. It's, it's convoluted, yes. it's complex, it's not linear, and it's multi-layered. And um, yes. I do need to say here the immediate response of kill the poacher, kill the poacher is not the answer. And um, we, we, we have to understand who the poacher is. The poacher, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And if we refer to South Africa specifically, we've got poachers that come from uh, a background, getting back to our earlier point of discussion, who are, let's call them disenfranchised of the original land, bearing quite a lot of resentment, uh, historical resentment um, about um, their experience of losing their land and how they were treated. And that attitude and experience um, has been uh, communicated over generations. So we've got poachers that um, poach on the basis of some of the historical background and then, of course, um, socioeconomic circumstances. Uh, poverty is still a massive issue in bordering communities, uh, whether private or public national parks and provincial reserves are close by or not. Uh, net employment is not huge. These areas don't have thousands of staff um, working in them. So we've got that problem. Factoring the next one, uh, without trying to sound too pessimistic, is population growth and things like climate change as well. So many communities are not as resilient as they used to be in the face of extreme weather, droughts, uh, floods, um, crop failures and th things like that. So I'd, instead of asking who the poacher is, let's actually ask what is the incentive. And for many of them, it's a bit of cash in the pocket. Uh, it means meals. It means maybe the first car the family's ever owned, the first driver's license that has ever been uh, passed in the family by somebody. And so there's a very human story to it as well. And then there's the good old uh, last two elements, the, the pure criminal component and then the more nefarious component, which is the transnational crime component. So local criminality, one would expect anywhere in the world in any kind of context and 
you know, law enforcement should be there to deal with it. But the transnational side of it is the, the major the major factor that forces many to poach. Well, this is an interesting point uh, to step away and take a break because you just outlined you know, several key operative aspects of conservation 2.0 and in a change rapidly changed world so stick with us we're going to step away for a break and we'll be right back ask the experts call toll free right now 1-866-472-5787 hello and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Ashwell Glasson. So at the end of the last section, and even the first section, um, if you've stuck with us so far, and I certainly hope you have, and if you are just stepping in, please go back and start from the beginning because this is a very big issue. World Order Conservation 2.0 is calling for a rapid change in how we address conservation, how we address the rapid losses of biodiversity, and how we address incentives, youth, and anti-poaching in this 
new world. So we left off the last section uh, talking about poaching and who the poachers are. And Ashwell, you made a very um, good statement here, a very particular statement that is highly operative. It's not so much who the poacher is, but what their incentive to poach is. And you outlined, um, I think, about four, six points uh, that are the pressing issues of that. Let's discuss this a little bit more. And then once again, um, it brings in the question of poverty. With the amount of money that's being poured into conservation, the disenfranchisement historically of indigenous first peoples from the land, re-educating with skill sets that are needed in a modern day criminalized world of international crime, this galvanizing of in incentivizing the youth to participate. In terms of, let's, let's frame this around rhino, since it's such a huge issue now, and South Africa is leading the world in breaking ranks, as you'd stated. How does all this come together, and what are the solutions that you see happening, and that our listeners who want to get involved, that are looking for something to hang their passion hat on, and to become unparalyzed, as we were talking about before, in a world that seems to be constantly full of negativity. We have to find the positivity so that we can restart this machinery and move forward. So help us, I'm just going to let you run with this, help us pull all of this together. Well, I'll rephrase that statement. Um, it's how do you get members of communities to be incentivized not to poach. That becomes the, the opposing, more positive, uh, more human uh, view. And one of the, the potential solutions for, for me is, yes, we can't put aside the, the rampant decline quickly. We have to understand this is a mid to long term um, effort and it will require commitment and effort but we do have to find better ways of getting our youth to be incentivized to protect their heritage and I'm not even going to say the word rhino I'm not going to say the word elephant I'm not going to say the word uh, nature reserve or game reserve I am going to say their heritage they have many of these communities um, and uh, I did mention the transnational crime element, but I'm going to keep that one out now. That's Those are normally non-locals who come in and um, uh, sort of further criminalize things within communities or introduce an element of criminality. But what we've got to look at is getting the communities and youth, uh, members of their youth, and in a sense, traditional leadership to take a stance um, to protect their heritage. Their rhinos are just as much their heritage, if not more, than uh, the tourists that visit and the, the businesses and farms in the area and all of that. That's their heritage. So a reminder, a reminder, and not just in a nice philosophical perspective, but in a real social daily practical perspective and one of the the ways of doing it ha is to get the training and skills 
um, around a community-driven project or community-driven approach to deterring um, poaching from within communities. And I think we've got to harness the natural systems and social systems that occur within those communities to help with that. Um, they can self-regulate and actually deter it. So we don't have to have uh, law enforcement officials kicking down doors with warrants uh, all the time in these communities to to deter or s stop poaching. Um, because we know, and very specifically in South Africa, that history uh, harks to a very dark time in our politics and our history. So and that wouldn't... Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry. So this kind of brings me full circle once again to the other side of the coin, the South African government. And as you'd said earlier, you know, there's bankruptcy everywhere and um, mm. cutting of funds, defunding of social services, defunding of this, defunding of that. It sounds like I'm talking about the U.S., but <laughs> isn't that part of the equation as well? So here we are requesting and hoping the communities will pick up the torch and fly the flag and carry the banner. But if the political system and the wealth in South Africa is not helping the conservation stewardship model and the, the, the poverty level of the surrounding communities to incentivize them with everything that we've talked about in this program, where does this come together? It's both sides, isn't it? It is both sides, and certainly we need better proactive leadership from the state. But um, uh, my history, which, which I didn't mention, I worked for uh, a private company, uh, which a private game reserve operator called And Beyond, which operates Pinda and a variety of reserves across the African continent. And one of the models that we worked on there and pioneered there was direct partnerships with the communities um, with very little or minimal state intervention of support. So both parties look at how they can mobilize the resources required to make it work. And uh, if one takes a look at the Pinda Game Reserve model and success, uh, it's been really brilliant. Uh, since 1992, pre the democratic elections, the first democratic elections of South Africa, and it's gone from strength to strength, to the point that it's a net exporter, I suppose, of um, biodiversity. Uh, it helped, if I remember correctly, uh, re-establish uh, Rwanda's lion population in Akagera National Park. So those models exist out there. I, I'm kind of a bit cynical, to be honest, about the South African state right now and its capacity or competence, I'm going to stick my neck out and say it, to actually work on very discreet, human-centered, partnership, holistic models. I do think the private sector, NGOs and community-based organizations, as well as communities and traditional leadership, can, can do most of it themselves. Uh, and I firmly believe that is part of the solution. I just want to clarify one thing you said, net export. When you're saying a net export, what is the export product? 
Are you talking oh, export uh, of wildlife or export of the model and the um, the systematic thinking? Both. Okay. Uh, it's the model and using, um, uh, for example, Pinder, like the Kruk National Park, is a closed um, reserve. Unfortunately, it's fenced all the way around, which is a typical problem that many game reserves and national parks in South Africa face is being closed in systems. So when they eventually hit um, an excessive amount of lions in terms of ecosystem and reserve management, they don't hunt. <laughs> so the, the no hunt policy meant they have to look for alternatives. And because they have a proactive stance on the, the issue around uh, having too many predators in the reserve, they had to look for partners. And in doing so, it created opportunities to assist Rwanda um, via African parks um, to reestablish their lion population. And if I remember correctly, okay. uh, they've just had they've just had their first set of cubs, and this took place. Uh, the cubs are, I think, quite recent, but this happened. I think was it last year, and Rwanda had not had a lion population for about a hundred years. So the model and thinking of community-centered let's call it private uh, sector partnerships, community-based private sector partnerships is certainly a, one of the solutions I would encourage and certainly a way that more immediate value for both partners is possible with the common view of managing and looking after the true concept of stewardship and heritage uh, versus a state-centric approach, which right now, we're really, really, really honest, and um, the validity of South Africa's approach is under huge scrutiny. So it's left up to South Africa's communities and uh, people that are interested in financial investments and tourism models, ecotourism models, to, to come up with um, responses. Because government right now in the state is really focusing on uh, the more strategic level, um, uh, you know, trade, etc. Um, so, so we're sort of talking about utilization versus non-utilization um, to sustainability. So rather mm. than a, within a closed system that reaches carrying capacity, that brings in hunting to solve the problem, um, mm. bring a closed system up to and beyond capacity, and then share the wealth in terms of biodiversity. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I think that 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 is definitely one of the 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 ways about it. There are some challenges with it because it still takes time, of course. Um, it's not something that happens overnight. So, getting back to the let's call it the solution toolkit, we still need the militarized or what I like to call the hybrid model of law enforcement and a militarized uh, deterrent um, in the short term. But we cannot possibly consider it into the long term. Of course, there will always be a need for law enforcement. But whilst we're in this transition to Conservation 2.0, we need to maintain a a focus on, at least right now, the species conservation issues with rhino and, of course, the growing elephant 
um, conservation issues for South Africa as well. This brings me to a perfect point where we are, time. Um, we've got some time left in this episode, but a lot of what we talked about today deals with short, medium, and long-term outlooks. So what it seems to me is South Africa is taking a very short-term outlook in pressing for pro-trade for a small group of people who have created a huge stock of wealth. Then you have Mm. the the medium and long-term, which is what the model you were talking about uh, in Rwanda, building up capacity to bring an area back to capacity to, to have wildlife. And then we've got our long-term, long-view goal. What? Let's, let's wrap this up in terms of how our listeners... So we all know what we can do short-term. We have a mm. good idea where we are medium-term. It's kind of bleak, um, at least for the next, I'm going to say, five years. I don't want to say 10. I'm hoping five years things can turn around. A lot can happen. So let's say we start turning this great machinery of conservation 2.0, and it picks up steam and gets the ball rolling. Where can we focus and help our listeners understand we've we've provided an incentive, whether you're local or global, of how to get involved, what flag you can pick up and what torch we need to pass on, where are we going and how do we get there from, how do we get from here to there in the, in the long-term view? That is probably um, both a bit contextual and um, also global. And for us, uh, South Africa's challenges are really around um, how to mitigate the impacts of a massively growing population. At the end of the day, when we take all of this aside, it's about population and it's about human population and pressure on national parks and biodiversity areas. So the alternatives, uh, which there are, um, for example, in Zambia and in uh, places like Namibia and traditionally in Zimbabwe around community-based natural resource management or CBNRM is probably the long-term view we should be pursuing is spreading um, biodiversity conservation in a mixed-use environment. So from a pure land-use environment, there should be mixed agriculture. It should not be industrial-scale monoculture farming with thousands of hectares of soya or maize or uh, sunflowers or rice or um, that model has to change. We have to look at incorporating biodiversity into Not only our earthscapes, but our mindscapes. Yes. So that's definitely part of the long-term plan um, that we need to adopt. The, 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 the strategy there is where the education, multi-generational thing starts kicking in. So if we can stimulate uh, the millennials to empower themselves to adopt that thinking and also 
uh, with respect, allow them to explore it, to make the mistakes um, and to regear their thinking and to collaborate in ways that we can't even conceive of right now. Um, I think that is a biggie as well. We have to we have to stimulate them to get to that point um, and to take the leadership. But the core, if we're talking um, the the real long term view, with the specter of um, extreme weather and those kind of things, we are being forced along this route, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Um, and that route and journey is about building more resilience. And what we do know, and I suppose it's argumentative as usual, is that where there's more biodiversity um, and that biodiversity is, is embedded in people's culture, they tend to be more resilient in the face of uh, adversity. So biodiversity is a good counter for adversity. Biodiversity provides opportunity. And as I've often said, un- unprecedented challenges provide unprecedented opportunities. And that's where we are right now, folks. So, Ashwell, I'm sorry we are out of time. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been fascinating to chat, and it's one of my passion topics, and we definitely can get there. Um, and absolutely. I, I think we can get there, too. So that's a good positive note to end on. And I would love to talk with you some more. So um, we'll have you back again, and we can carry on this conversation. And uh, meanwhile, we are out of time for today's episode. So thank you so much for your time. And you've been listening to Ashwell Glasson. Ellie Weiss, and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.